Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all have had a wonderful week so far and have a restful weekend and a happy Easter to those who celebrate. This is technically the first True Crime in Academia podcast episode recorded from the new desk and the new chair. Yes, my chair came. I'm very excited. I love it so much. I'll probably post about it in the next couple of days or so. It's just, it's it's not a color that I thought I would get, truthfully. But the shape of it reminds me of a seashell, and I love it. So it's also very comfortable. So <laughs> I'm very excited about that. And I just feel like my room is finally, like, complete. So it's just been nice enjoying my space again, you know, and not have to be, or not have to be, but just not have to feel like I'm just so cluttered and cramped and everything. Like, I feel like I can finally breathe in here. So it's just, it's wonderful. I love it. Um, But anyway, this week we are wrapping up our Death in the Dorms series, the ABC slash Hulu series. Um... So we are closing out that first season today. And then we'll just kind of move on with how true crime is normally (laughs) moved on. But I really enjoyed doing this series. Like I said, I enjoyed watching the episodes. This is the second time I've watched this series in general. And I just really appreciate how the episodes were created and just the overall respect that was given to the victims and the families. So, without any further ado, let's get into our last installment of the Death in the Dorm series. On May 4th, 2003, at around 4.08 a.m., students of Western Kentucky University in the Hugh Poland Hall were awoken to the fire alarm. Now, if you've ever been in a college dorm, you know how often this happens and how usually it's just like a false alarm, someone pulling a prank, or it's like a very minor cooking debacle. Students were gathered outside, but as time went on and the fire department arrived, they knew something was wrong. Shortly after entering the building, firefighters returned carrying the body of a blonde-haired student who was badly burned and barely alive. One of the students described one of the firefighters putting his oxygen mask on the barely alive woman. That same firefighter then turned to the group and said, If any of you are praying people, now would be the time. Katie Autry was born on June 10, 1984, in Rosine, Kentucky. Katie grew up with her sister, mother, and grandparents in her grandparents' home. Sadly, Katie and Lisa's mother became unable to take care of them, and they were put into foster care. The girls were thankfully kept together, and they lived with the Immons for 10 years. Now, the Immons were a bit stricter. They were devout Christians, so Lisa and Katie would attend church services with them. But the girls weren't really allowed to date or hang out with friends. This did not affect either girl negatively. Katie's cousin, Barbie White, who was very close with Katie when they grew up and up until her death, 
said that, you know, it wasn't a bad thing and they really just did it to keep the girls out of trouble. In school, Katie was an A-B student on the honor roll who ran track and won cheerleader of the year multiple times. Aside from being smart and athletic, Katie was described as being funny, loving, caring, and just kind. Now, Rosine is a small town, and there are limited job opportunities, and Katie wanted a better life for herself, so she wanted to go to college. And in 2002, Katie was accepted to Western Kentucky University. She was the first person in her family to go to college. Her family was extremely happy for and proud of her. Now, Katie chose WKU because it was close to her biological family, so she could go and visit them and did visit them on the weekends. She was placed into Hugh Poland Hall in room 214 that she shared with her roommate, Danica. The two girls became very close and considered themselves to be sisters. In college, Katie was really finding herself. She got a job working on campus at a smoothie place, and despite her fear of needles, she got her tongue pierced and a tattoo. She was going to parties and dating, getting her heart broken, and she had also gotten herself out of the foster care system. So she was really on her own and making her own decisions at this point. One of her friends from the dorm Andrew Howard said that, you know, Katie seemed to be like very quiet and shy, but once you got to know her, she opened up and she just, you know, was hilarious. Thursday nights were considered to be like the unofficial party night at Western Kentucky University, and the school had a strong Greek life, so it was easy to find parties. Towards the end of the second semester, of course, it's party time. And again, this is not just at WKU, but at any college. And on May 3rd, 2003, Katie and Danica went to a Pike party. At some point, Katie and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Maurice, got into an argument and Katie slapped him. Now, this is not okay by any means. Like, violence is never okay, especially in relationships. Like, it's it's just not okay, you know? It just leads and it escalates and it just gets worse. And I'm not saying that Katie's, like, a violent person, you know? I want to point out that, like, at the time she was drunk. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse, but I really don't think that she would have slapped him if she were sober. And, like, I, I'm not defending her actions by any means i'm just literally pointing out the fact that had she not been drunk she probably wouldn't have slapped him you know but what's done is done essentially and you know like i said it's just it's never okay never 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 okay now the fraternity and most fraternities from this college and other colleges they would usually have a few freshmen or pledges to stay sober and drive drunk partygoers home. Danica made sure Katie got into one of those sober driver's cars, but she did wind up staying at the party. This was around 1.30 a.m. 
Now, according to the front desk staff at Poland Hall, Katie arrived between 1.30 and 2 a.m., and she was alone and seemed, you know, fine. At 4.08 a.m., the fire alarm goes off at Poland Hall. The RA of that floor went around knocking on all the doors, and students were told to evacuate. The fire department arrived within three minutes. The fire was contained at that point. It hadn't spread from, you know, the room where it originated in. And the sprinklers had gone off. But what the students thought was some sort of, like, prank was actually something more gruesome. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all 
around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Rumors started circulating amongst the students that were standing outside. And... Basically, all of them led to something had happened to the blonde girl in room 214, Katie Autry. Firefighters went inside and put out the fire. The room, though, was pitch black. But one of the firefighters saw something glistening. And what he saw was Katie's arm. She was still breathing, but barely alive. They rushed her out of the room and laid her on the grass. One of the firefighters removed his oxygen mask and put it onto Katie to start life-saving measures until EMS arrived. He told the students standing around that if they prayed, they should start praying now. Andrew, Katie's friend, identified her to officials, and when EMS arrived, Katie was rushed to a nearby hospital. The hospital staff observed Katie's burns and concluded that she had prior yet very recent injuries not caused by the fire. Katie has sustained three to four stab wounds to her neck, bruising and ligature marks on her neck, and other injuries consistent with having been beaten. Katie obviously had burns on her body, but the location was suspicious because the burns were between her thighs and her breasts. Obviously, her burns were not consistent with an accidental fire, and it was obvious to the hospital staff that someone did this to her. Sergeant Kevin Pickett from Kentucky State Police was assigned to Katie's case. When he spoke with firefighters, he was told that a towel was wrapped around the sprinkler in Katie's room. Now, this would keep the heat in and would not activate the sprinklers as quickly. He also learned that the cord of a curling iron was wrapped around Katie's neck and a towel was in her mouth when they found her. So her room is immediately considered a crime scene. Barbie White, Katie's cousin, who's featured in the documentary, remembers her mother getting a call from Mrs. Immons saying that Katie was in an accident. She said that her entire family got dressed and rushed to the hospital. Doctors brought them into a room and told them about Katie's injuries and burns. Barbie, who was 16 at the time, and in shock, I'm sure, said in the documentary or in the episode that, you know, she didn't fully grasp what the doctors were saying to her until her mother straight out said, you know, someone did this to her. Katie's aunt, 
Barbie's mother, asked to see Katie, but was told that she couldn't touch her because of the burns and couldn't risk infection. She could only see her for a few minutes because Katie was about to be airlifted to another hospital. And at this point, Katie had been put in a chemically induced coma and just looked as if she was sleeping. Barbie said that her mother cried out for Katie to wake up and was so upset that she had to be physically removed by Barbie herself and her father. When police hear about her injuries and burn marks from the hospital, Sergeant Pickett and his team immediately know that this was done to cover up a sex crime. And it makes sense. Why would she have burns in the areas that she had them? I mean, obviously, could that have happened without some sort of sexual assault? Absolutely. However, as we'll go on, that is (laughs) not the case. Other agencies joined to support the investigation and interviewed Danica, who gave them details of the night before, how they went to the party and Katie left early after fighting with her boyfriend, Maurice, of course. She also says that she later called Katie around 2.30 a.m. and that she, you know, heard voices in the room with Katie and Katie had told her that there was someone that she didn't know with her and that Katie wanted them to leave because she just wanted to go to bed. Danica, being the protective, and I swear, she does the most. I mean, I honestly hope that Danica, wherever she is, is not feeling any guilt about the outcome of what happened to Katie, because honestly, she did everything and more. Because like I said, she got her into the sober driver car, Which already, you know, again, a responsible thing. You wouldn't suspect that something bad would happen from that. But then she takes the extra step to call her and make sure that not only that she got home, but that she's okay. And now hearing that there's someone in the room with her, she tells Katie, I want to speak to this person. So a guy comes on the phone and he's claiming to be the sober driver that brought her home. And, of course, Danica didn't think too much of it. Okay, maybe Katie needed help getting upstairs, whatever, and making sure she's okay. Doesn't know what to do, maybe. I don't know. But she tells him, you know, make sure Katie falls asleep on her stomach so that she doesn't choke if she pukes. Which, I always thought you had to lay on your side for that. But either way, you know, like, I just love how Danica tries to take care of Katie even when she's not there. And... Like I said, I feel like she was just doing the most, and I really don't think she could have done more, honestly. Now, at some point during this call, however, Danica hears a second man's voice, but again, doesn't really think too much of it. Who knows what it could be? And of course, I mean, no one's suspecting for anything this horrible to happen. Now, the next step for police, of course, is to question Maurice, Katie's on-again, off-again boyfriend. He tells police about their fight, and according to him, the fight seemed to be about Katie wanting something more serious, and Maurice just wasn't ready for that. Now, And, you know, then Katie slapped him, but he claims that he never hit her back or in general. And I shouldn't say that he said he claims, but he really didn't. He didn't hit her at all. 
and never did. He then stated that after that, after the party, he left and went and hung out with friends and they played some video games. And at some point he watched a slam dunk contest before going to bed. And his roommates confirmed this as well as Maurice's cell phone records. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs, and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. The police then realized they need to find this sober driver. Now, Danica did not know the sober driver's name, but she gave police a description of the guy and the car that he was driving. Police question people at the party, and they find that the sober driver that Katie drove with was a man named Ryan Payne. He said that he did take Katie home that night, but he wasn't the one who spoke to Danica. In fact, he hadn't even been in Katie's dorm at all. He then went back and hung out with friends. However, he did say that there was someone else in the car with him because he was borrowing a friend's car to take people home. And by car, it was actually a truck. Now, this friend was not a student at WKU, but like I said, you know, he was friends with Ryan and had other friends at the school. This man's name was Stephen Souls. And during this whole car ride, he was passed out next to him on the bench seat of this truck, which means then Katie sat in next to him in the passenger seat. Now, after dropping off Katie, Ryan dropped off Stephen close by at his request and walked in the direction of Katie's dorm. So the cops interview Stephen, who said, you know, he was completely blackout drunk, he doesn't remember anything, and that at some point he knows he went back to his friend's house and stayed there the rest of the night. And this friend does corroborate his story. Police had also discovered that Katie had recently worked at a strip club called Tattletales for literally two weeks. This led to rumors of her death being related to her work there. And I really hate the connotation that sex workers get, especially dancers. As a former, you know, classically trained dancer, which I hate, which, <sighs> I hate that I even have to say that, but, like, dancing in general is fucking hard. You know, especially dancing to a way that you, it makes it look good. 
You know, this isn't just some, you know, oh, this person's a great dancer because they know all the line dances and know rhythm and, you know, have some moves on the dance floor at weddings. N- this is not it. <laughs> this is a whole other level, a completely different ballpark, completely different sport, completely different game. Okay, maybe not all of that. I'm exaggerating. But you know what I mean. It's fucking hard, okay? And, you know, not for nothing, you make good money doing that. And I would be lying myself if I said that I never considered it. At one point, I actually considered doing burlesque and um, in college. And I was just always so insecure about my body <laughs> that I didn't think I'd be thin enough to get a job or be hot enough to get a job spoilers I was actually quite skinny and totally would have gotten a job had I tried but um this is just one I mean a major one of the ways that body dysmorphia fucks you up but I digress basically all I'm saying is you know Katie was doing hard work and I hate that this became a point of contention or even as a reason for why she would have been killed or like an explanation of why she died or, you know, why she maybe could have deserved it or something like that. Like I just, I fucking hate it. Now, because Katie left the foster system, like I said previously, she was completely financially independent, which meant she had to pay for school and bills on her own. And the money that she was making at the smoothie place just wasn't cutting it. So she found a job at Tattletales. Now police questioned her coworkers, but it was determined (laughs) no surprise, that this job had nothing to do with her death. But of course, the media had a field day, and her identity as a student really changed to that of a stripper, which we all know how well that goes in the media. Right, ladies and gentlemen? (laughs) It's fucking ridiculous. As if people deserve to have crimes and horrific things happen to them. It just... That logic drives me insane. But it's obvious, you know, she did it because she would make good money. And she needed to. But, you know, again, she realized it wasn't for her, so she quit. For three days, Katie fought to stay alive. Sadly, though, at this point, doctors had told her family that they were at a turning point. Her lungs were the main concern, and she wasn't getting enough oxygen. Katie's family stayed with her until her last moments, and she died later that day on May 7th, 2003. So at this point, her death is now considered a homicide. Police at this point are at a standstill until they get a phone call, and it's from Stephen's friend, and he's rescinding his friend's alibi and says that Stephen wasn't with him on that night like he had said that he was. Police now know that they need to talk to him. So they get to his family home, and his family claims that they haven't seen him all day. Now, Sergeant Pickett is picking up on everyone's energy, and he notices that Stephen's brother is very concerned based off of his tone and body language. So he tells the brother, like, look, I don't know what Stephen's done. I don't know what he's into, but I need to talk to him. Later that night, Pickett gets a call on his phone at home from Stephen. Stephen agrees to come in for an interview. Stephen immediately says, I didn't do anything to her. 
He said that he met back up with Katie at the dorm and she let him up and that they had consensual sex. Police didn't really believe this and they brought in what they like to call props, which I mean, they are props. Let's be real. You know, they're hoping to, you know, do what essentially in in musical theater or theater with props. You know, you're trying to not only create a sense of normalcy or familiarity, but you're also trying to evoke an emotion sometimes. And that's what they were trying to do in this case. So their props for this were VHS tapes. And they're saying that they are the security tapes from Poland Hall. Stephen immediately breaks down and tells the police that he was forced to do it. At first, he says some stranger came into her room and attacked her. Police do not believe this. So eventually, they press him, and he admits that it was his friend, Lucas Goodrum, another non-student at WKU, but again, like him, had friends there. Stephen Lucas went to the Pike Party. They had some fun, and... He said that Lucas eventually came and found him in the apartment, or not the apartment, but in the dorm, and that Lucas made him do everything that he did. He said that Lucas was in the dorm somehow, came up, and saw him having sex with Katie and wanted to, quote, get some too. But Katie wasn't into it. He said then he got forceful with Katie. He said that Lucas then grabbed Katie by her throat and held her down. He also stated that Lucas was the one to stab her, and that Lucas had threatened him and his family if he didn't go along with everything he said. Now, Stephen admits to raping Katie, and said that he was forced to by Lucas to do it. Now, Lucas Goodrum has a history of domestic violence, and was actually forced to go to anger management. So, of course, police bring him in. This is on May 10th at around 10.30 a.m. Lucas tells police that he saw Katie at the Pike party and that she rubbed up on his stomach walking by and, you know, he saw her dancing and it just, it was clear to him that she was drunk and would need a ride home. He stated, though, that he, you know, denies everything that Stephen said and that actually he drove home to his father's house after not being able to find Stephen. After some time, though, and the amount of evidence that they had against the two, which we'll get into in just a second, they arrest both Stephen and Lucas. The following day, there are services held for Katie, and the turnout is insane, just kind of how you would expect it to be, honestly, given the type of person that she was. Now, a little background on Lucas. Lucas is the stepson of the family who found the Dollar General. His mother was married to the grandson of the person who found it. So even though he was not the heir or grew up with money, he was painted that way by the media. And, you know, of course, he was able to obtain a very decent lawyer. Stephen, on the other hand, grew up poorer than that and had to have a public defender. Now, when Lucas was brought to court, he brought evidence. They had interviews from his father saying that, you know, he had driven home and stayed the night with him and supposed gas receipts. However, there is no video footage proving that Lucas was the one who purchased the gas. 
based off of the actual physical evidence at the scene, there was DNA left, and every single piece of DNA that they found matched to Stephen. Now, <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about Stephen at this point. Honestly, like, we'll get on further as to the evidence against Lucas. I don't... <sighs> I don't know. I'm very conflicted here. I don't know if Steven's dragging his friend into it, but also, like, what would he have to gain from doing that? Like, there really isn't anything. But the majority of DNA evidence that there is matches Steven, like I said. So he takes a plea deal, which in his case I feel like is smart. He pled guilty to rape and murder and agreed to testify against Lucas in exchange for life in prison without the possibility of parole. So this took the death penalty completely off the table. Sadly, there was literally no physical evidence tying Lucas to this crime. Literally just Stephen's word against his and Danica saying that she heard two men over the phone. Now, trial had to be moved to Owensboro because of the media saturation. And, you know, you can't have an unbiased jury if there's so much media saturation. So that's why they did this. Danica actually testified at this hearing and said that she had heard a second male voice in Katie's dorm. There was some doubt, however, though, with Stephen's testimony because his story had changed several times which, of course, made his reliability questionable. I'm not saying that's correct or not, because sometimes, you know, memory is not entirely reliable, you know? So while on one hand it could mean that, you know, he just didn't remember and was piecing things together in the wrong way, or he's lying, but we really just don't know. The jury came back three hours later, which is quick, and found Lucas not guilty, and he was acquitted for Katie's murder. Now, by the courts, he is innocent of this crime, and because of double jeopardy, he cannot be tried again. I don't know whether he did it or not. I mean, I understand why the jury made the decision that they did if you know you know if you can't place a person <laughs> at a crime scene just because you have other circumstantial evidence and that is evidence you know it's harder to you know validate that circumstantial evidence and you know again it's a shame and you know if steven was lying and brought dragged lucas into this even though i don't think he is you know, he's serving life in prison and isn't going to get out. So, you know, justice served, I guess. You know, meanwhile, this other kid is out and about. And, you know, if he really had nothing to do with it, I do wish him well. I hope he gets himself right and fixes his anger issues and things like that. But who knows? Anyway, that is all I have for you, my loves. That is the end of our Death in the Dorms series. Please don't forget. Please forget. Please don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on social media at True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok and at TC and Academia on Twitter. Until next week, my loves, I will see you later. 
Welcome to the spring season. This is Andrew from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Make sure that you always listen to our new episodes on Mondays. Are you following us on social media? No? Oh, you need to. Follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Hey, true crime friends. This is Mary DePippi, host of True Crime in Academia. Don't forget, episodes come out on Fridays at 7.30 p.m. And you can also follow True Crime and Academia on social media. On Instagram and TikTok, we're at True Crime and Academia. And on Twitter, at TC in Academia. And Mary and I, we need some coffee. We need to keep a pep in our step and we just need that caffeine. So do you we know sound we sound energetic? The- we're not. We're tired. Yeah, yeah, no, this is all coffee. So the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe is our Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. $5 a month unlocks so many bonus episodes. So for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you get Mary and I, our exclusive winter arts and culture hot takes, including what do we think about Prince Harry, Pamela Anderson, Where are Oscars predictions right? Why does James Cameron have to make Avatar movies? We want more Titanic. Okay, and also I dissect straight gym bro culture with Dominic Jaynes. Why are people afraid of sodomy? You get all the uncensored conversations on Patreon. That's where our bonus episodes are. And I know, Mary, what do you have on Patreon? Oh, we have a lot right now. I cover cases that I would not cover on the podcast. So if you want to access those, like Andrew said, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. So you can see episodes from true crime, like the dating game killer, AKA Rodney Alcala, Or you can see the live video interviews that we have done. Most recently, I interviewed not one, but two forensic psychologists. And get this, I only released 30 minutes of the actual audio to the podcast. So that means the whole extra 30 minutes is on Patreon just for subscribers. Wait, an extra 30 minutes? An See, extra 30 just for minutes. A cup of coffee, everyone. Okay. Well, I also want to shout out our amazing internship team here. So, our interns include Andrea, Sarah, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. A round of applause to all of them. We thank you. They keep the Ivory Tower Boiler Room literally going. Uh, so, Mary and I are so appreciative. Thanks to our audience. And we can't wait to see you back here. Bye, everyone.